Tom Johnson is a senior technical writer for Google in Seattle, Washington. He's the he's best known for his blog on I would rather be writing, where he posts regularly on technical communication topics. Additionally, he created an extensive web API documentation course that has helped hundreds of technical writers around the globe transition into API documentation. Lately, he has been working. on a series of essays titled he has given more than 100 presentations during his career and always in new things especially trends and you have been following him uh, through his blogs and articles now here for all of you uh, tom in heart and place so tom please go ahead and we are all uh, looking forward to hearing from you okay thank you i appreciate the introduction and I appreciate the uh, invitation to speak. It always kind of lights the fire under me to, to push and think about a specific topic. Uh, and I've been thinking about a topic lately that I'm kind of excited about. Um, so Rajib asked me to present on trends, but I sort of present on trends a lot. So I didn't really want to do that. Instead, I wanted to kind of do sort of an anti-trends presentation, looking at failed trends and so on. So I sent out this survey um, uh, a while back, uh, I was trying to identify what are the failed trends? What are things that have fizzled? And I put, I, I came up with a kind of a, a list of 20 or so trends that I thought, you know, some of these surely have failed and might be a good starting point. The semantic web, desktop publishing tools, wikis, chatbots, uh, offshoring content strategy, and to my surprise, none of them were uh, came back as totally faded. Um, there were about 300 people who took this short little survey. It was very quick. I mean, you basically dragged a slider to one of three options, uh, and it took two minutes max. But I was really surprised that nobody marked totally faded for any trends. Um, uh, about the only ones that kind of didn't excel, um, DocBook, pushing docs to social media and so on, are still kind of rated as hanging in there. And this caused me to really rethink this approach about failed trends that I wanted to, to pursue. I'm like, well, wait a minute. There, there are no failed trends? How do you make sense of that? You know, and so I thought, well, maybe my survey was bad. Maybe I just didn't have very good wording. Maybe I lacked definitions. Some things I threw out there, uh, intelligent content. Some things people misinterpreted, uh, such as Stack Overflow's documentation experiment. Just people assumed I was just referring to Stack Overflow and so on. But in general, when you have 300 people who are all responding and saying, yes, this is still hanging in there, or this is still going strong, it's kind of hard to say, oh, 300 people misinterpreted this. Um, Another person said, well, maybe people's perceptions perceptions are skewed or they, they want to resist feeling that their practice is outdated. Nobody wants to say that what their bread and butter is is like fading, right? So there's that and maybe, right? You know, this is a very informal, non-scientific, just kind of a quick, fun survey. Nothing where I'm collecting actual like data of any rigor. Uh, but overall... I kind of walked away from this thinking, okay, anything that was ever a trend maybe is here to stay in some form or another. 
it makes sense in some context, some domain, some writing scenario, some audience, this trend uh, is is uh, right for them. And so what happens is we have a plurality of trends. We have a, a diverse, plural, fragmented field of practices. Uh, so, so this put me in a, a, a bind about, well, what am I going to say now about failed trends? Because clearly um, I don't have any kind of evidence about a failed trend. So instead I decided I'm going to take the approach uh, and turn it on myself. I've been in the industry since 2005 and I've kind of lived through a lot of different trends through my writing, my tech writing career. Um, I was able to kind of identify 15 major trends that I participated in um, from the, the beginning of my career until the present. And so I said, let me go through each trend and say, what is it? Why did I adopt it? Why did I abandon it or not? And what's the current status? Uh, because at least, at least I can say whether a trend failed for me, for my experience, and then understand why maybe that trend didn't work for me. Could just be that, oh, you switched into developer documentation and so this was no longer relevant or something. But then, uh, oh, and here, here's an overview of what, what we're going to talk about. Um, hats, wikis, screencasting, scrum, API documentation, and so on. We'll go through each of these fairly briefly. Uh, I do, these all link, by the way, to articles. If you, if you want to dive into this more, come up to this URL, go to my blog, basically, and you can see I've got like a whole series of articles on each of these, uh, just in the left sidebar. I'm, I'm working my way through them. It's actually been really, really fun, but definitely if you want more detail, that's where you go. But uh, I didn't want to stop there, right? Because that's kind of, that's not that exciting. It's like Tom's tour through his trends and reasons why he adopted or, or abandoned trends. So there's kind of a larger goal here. And it's more of an experimental part that's sort of fun. We'll see if it works or not. But I want to use inductive reasoning to discover principles related to trends that will allow us to assess the viability of current trends. And we'll, so from these 15 trends, I'm going to try to extrapolate like five or six general principles about trends and then use those principles to apply them to a current trend that I'm completely mixed about. And I don't know whether it's going to take off or fizzle uh, and see if we can learn anything from the past because, you know, maybe, maybe all these trends don't lend themselves to any future learning. Maybe they're completely self-contained and, and singular, or maybe there are patterns. Maybe there are things you can glean to make better decisions. Okay. So it, it should be fun. It's a little ambitious near the end and it will, it will get more exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, what, one simple disclaimer, I'm not an academic. I haven't been researching this extensively with uh, mountains of data and so on and doing lots of studies and so on. This is kind of like my high level take on a lot of trends and Tom's thoughts. So take it with a grain of salt there. All right. Hats help authoring tools, uh, abbreviated as hats and single sourcing is kind of what I, what I was greeted with when I started my first 
job as a tech writer back in 2005. We were using RoboHelp. It was kind of a very common tool back then. And the nice thing about hats is that they single sourced content, giving you both uh, print output and web output. There really weren't many tools out there that could could kind of give you both of those outputs. And the, back in 2005, I mean, the web was very nascent and a lot of people still preferred print. It wasn't just very web centric, uh, but at the same time, you wanted to have web content. So. I think that, that help authoring tools really thrived in this time when people want both print and web, and you don't want to be copying and pasting from one system to another. And RoboHelp worked fine for that. I actually really enjoyed working with it, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> hacking the, the skin to brand it with our company and so on. You know, it was a lot of fun. But eventually, I changed jobs to another job that had a much a uh, stronger community. There were a lot of people who wanted to write and collaborate, and I realized, you know what? Help authoring tool is not really going to scale. Um, so this brings me to wikis and crowdsourcing. This was another huge trend. Wikis would allow anybody to edit and contribute docs, and crowdsourcing, dis w the idea is that you distribute the bulk of the work to the crowd. Uh, everybody contributes a little bit here and there, and lots of hands make for light work. Uh, the role of the writer would kind of fade into the background as somebody who was a curator, who was, you know, publisher, who was overseer, content steward. But, you know, the, a lot of the content development and creation could just be done by the oodles of people um, in the community adding their little topics and paragraphs here and there. Well, why did I start embracing wikis and crowdsourcing? I worked at a company that had a strong volunteer community and a lot of people wanted to kind of get involved and um, donate their time and talent for technology work, but a lot of them didn't have engineering skills, so they were pushed into writing and I was trying to manage them. I would, I would say, okay, we need you to write an article for this feature uh, and, and so on, or hey, this is this is some documentation that needs to be reworked. Why don't you do this? Or here's a topic. I had at one point 60 people who I had on little index cards on boards in various stages of like, oh, this person just joined and oh, this person's almost got the, their article ready and this person is like stuck here. And I was trying to like manage it all. Um, but one day I just kind of looked at it and uh, I looked at how much all the volunteers had produced over the course of several months versus how much I could produce over the same time. And it was about the same. And I was like, you know what, this is, this is not really working. Crowdsourcing just doesn't really work. Um, and, and wikis, although, uh, they were popular at the time, uh, they've really faded as an external documentation tool. They've, they've thrived internally. They have almost become the default architecture for all like internal documentation because you do need the whole company writing docs for their teams and so on. Okay. Faceted filtering was kind of the next trend in my career path. This is the idea that if you have a lot of information, you can start filtering it down based on different attributes, which is very common now. Uh, but like if you go to a, a shoe website and you're like, oh, I want to see sports shoes and this brand and this size. And pretty soon you've just got like two left on the page. Well, why couldn't we do this for information? I was really trying to 
unlock findability and trying to see how do you enable people to find that one topic because it's their answer is usually there if they could just locate it well this idea of faceted filtering never quite took off in part because there was really weak tool support for it it was really hard to get some kind of faceted filters on the side that would narrow down all the topics it really relied on xml attributes for different values but xml and the web were just kind of drifting further apart um, uh, and and it just wasn't a common paradigm in docs like information didn't have these clear facets that a lot of physical products do and, you know with shoes yeah it, clearly has a lot of facets that I was just mentioning. But when you have information, maybe you have like a version and a language and an operating system, or maybe you don't, maybe you just have one version, one operating system, one language, and then what do you have for your facets? You don't, and in sort, it didn't really take off. The next trend that I participated in heavily was screencasting. These are just short videos that show you how to do a specific task. Two minutes, often have some, some audio narration. In fact, this microphone that I'm using is one that I invested in a long time ago because I wanted to improve the quality of my voice. I even took, I even found like a, a local voice actor and tried to take lessons on how to develop a better voice narration, <laughs> which I realized was really hard and I was terrible at it. Um, but I adopted screencasting and was really into it in part because YouTube was rising in popularity. A lot of people thought, oh, text is over. People just, all they want, they want videos. Um, and, and it was just a, a dominant learning preference. And I was working with user interfaces. So it lended itself very naturally to screencasts. But when I transitioned into writing developer docs that were very code heavy, uh, video tutorials didn't really work that well. I mean, show people how to code in real time. It's kind of weird. Uh, I tried it once and people within the company love the fact that I made videos, but the developers, the audience didn't really respond. They didn't care. They didn't really watch them much. So I never did them after that. Um, now videos are still popular, especially on sites. Uh, that, that are teaching beginners from ground zero up, including encoding, but they're not that common in tech writer outputs because of the high production costs, the, the bandwidth, the short life. Agile kind of killed screencasts because if you change your product every two weeks, your screencasts go out of date really quickly and, and they're not easy to update. So it's, it's very high maintenance deliverable. Quick reference guides are another thing that for a time I was really into. I had InDesign. I was looking through magazine layouts to get really attractive two-column, three-column, sometimes four-column layouts with kind of balanced visuals and stuff. And these could be printed out as PDFs in short one- to two-page guides. They were kind of awesome to give out as people were maybe giving a course or at a, at a conference or just um, when we launched software. Uh, problem is these guides, first of all, required a lot of meticulous care in, in, a, in a desktop layout tool like InDesign. So it was outside of the regular uh, help authoring system where all the documentation was. And as I transitioned into developer documentation, getting started tutorials were much more common. And these didn't have to fit in one to two page guides. 
they didn't fit in fancy columns or layouts. You just had often uh, little code samples and steps, and it could be uh, linked to from the homepage of your docs. Now, I think quick reference guides and getting started guides are really common for hardware products. It's almost the only thing that users read or seem to read. It's the only thing that gets included in a lot of products, and they send you online for the, the larger ones. So still popular, just not so much in developer docs. I also was really into WordPress, which is a web content management system or CMS. In fact, I was a WordPress consultant for five years and I would work on websites, including conference websites like LavaCon and others. And I, you know, actually had a whole side hustle doing WordPress consulting. Um, I started out adopting it because I was like a, a webmaster for an STC chapter, moving their content into this new site. And hey, WordPress looked really easy. It was pretty incredible that you could you could make any kind of website you wanted with the, the vast library of themes, plugins. You just kind of just activated them and did some simple configuration. And man, you had like a website that looked professional. Um, I mean, WordPress has continued to remain popular. I think it powers like 43% of the internet in terms of the websites on there. Uh, and, and I listened to a recent interview with the founder, Matt Mullenweg, and he, he believes that in 10 years time, 80% of websites will be powered by WordPress, which is insane, right? So why isn't it more popular and common among documentation websites? You know, it's easy to do a website, very, a lot of plugins and themes, yet you, you don't see hardly any WordPress based documentation websites. It's like such a paradox. And it bothered me for years. I had my blog on WordPress. I was doing WordPress consulting, but by day I was using Madcap Flare or some other tool, MediaWiki. Well, the reason WordPress never took off is because it's based on our, on uh, Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP known as the LAMP stack, which is pretty much uh, rare in enterprises due to security limitations. Uh, Basically, enterprises don't support PHP for the most part. And so you can never just easily launch WordPress. Uh, I did have an opportunity to use Drupal at one company, which is highly similar, but even more extensible. But it didn't work out very well for docs. It was very hard to like update things, especially when you wanted to make a single name change across files. It would like, you'd have to do a database query. And if you messed it up, suddenly you saw a bunch of weird characters and you could very easily screw things up for your whole site. Um, now Drupal is still very popular for, for uh, developer portals. Um, and especially when you wanna have like a place where users go and they log in and they can configure things, it still works really well. But as far as your bread and butter documentation tools, you don't see it too often. Next on the, the road here is DITA, right? I can't leave out DITA, Darwin Information Typing Architecture. It's an XML schema, many of you are familiar with. Um, very common in large enterprises when they, wanna, when they want to standardize docs. You know, you have specific elements you can use, rules about nesting, what elements can be used with different topic types and so on. And I adopted it because I was frustrated using tools like Drupal that simply weren't designed for tech writers. Every, every challenging scenario we had in Drupal, I was like, man, I wish there were a tool 
that would just accommodate what we're trying to do. Whether you're trying to output PDF or you're trying to translate something, you're trying to add metadata. I mean, it just, uh, it seemed like data was finally a language and, and a whole ecosystem of tools that were designed specifically for tech writers for our scenarios and it would just like handle them in a natural way. So I was really excited about it. Drank the Ditta Kool-Aid for a while as I did a pilot and kind of experimented and learned Ditta. And I uh, was right in the middle of helping a company choose which tool we would use and migrate all of our content to when somebody introduced me to uh, Jekyll, a Docs code system that used Markdown and in this particular scenario, um, the documentation I was working on was developer documentation. And one of our developers was contributing content in Markdown to us. He would give us a Markdown file of content. And I was like, wow, well, if we ever want to collaborate with developers, we're going to have to use like a language that they're going to write in. Uh, so never really pursued Ditta as, as the tool. It also would have required us to invest in a large um, CCMS, a component content management system, because that's usually how you manage data projects. Not always, but, uh, and those, those are not cheap. So that would have required quite an effort. The current status of data, it's still hanging in there. It's very common in big companies uh, because when you, when you have thousands of topics or hundreds of guides, hundreds of writers, you need a system to manage all this content. And that system is going to require structure and that structure is usually going to be XML. And if it's XML, it's usually data, sometimes doc book. So it's hard to get away from XML structure when you want a system to manage all your content. And if you don't have a system to manage your content, you just have like Git repositories, then you usually have to build and roll your own tools, which can be even more complicated and, and, and challenging. All right, next I, dabbled in content strategy. This buzzword kind of appeared on the scene one day with uh, a popular book by Christina Halverson. And it sort of it sort of gave a name to this practice that a lot of people were doing. They were doing a lot of strategic analysis around content and planning and trying to look at this larger picture about messaging and, and the goals around content, all the meta work around writing. You know, if you if you take away the fact or take away the act of actually writing documentation, all this other work that goes into this planning and, and, and strategy around documentation, what do you call that? Well, you know, previously I think people were just consultants or, you know, maybe strategic directors or something, but I think content strategy was so popular because it suddenly gave a name to all the strategic work that people were doing. And especially if somebody wasn't a writer, what were they doing? Well, they're doing, they're doing content strategy. Um, and, and for a while I, I wanted to kind of recognize this strategic aspect of our work and tried changing our, our doc groups name to information strategies and design. You know, I was like, yeah, we're going to, we're not just writers. It seemed like writing at the time was sort of getting a bad rap. It's like writing is a commodity. You can just outsource that. It's not something that is a unique skill. Anybody can write, you know, but strategy that's sexy, you know, that sells, that's something that like we want to put on our resumes and our job titles. Well, I, I sort of had an innate reaction eventually to this term because it seemed to imply that writing 
was just this mechanical act of typing that didn't include strategy. And that always bothered me. Uh, but I still feel like, you know, a lot of my, my role is strategic. I think maybe 30% strategy, 70% execution of tactics. Um, content strategy is still really popular. I mean, it, most people want to uh, highlight that, yeah, they're doing a lot of strategic thinking and analysis around their role. But if you try to find a job as a content strategist, you're often misled into, well, there was sort of a semantic takeover by a lot of SEO firms. You know, oh, we want a content strategist would just be a fancy word for somebody who's pushing out uh, content around keywords as a like SEO strategy. Uh, but the real content strategists who are like chief, content chief officers and so on, really few and far between. And I never saw the word content strategy proliferate among jobs for technical writers in ways that I thought would recognize its role. Um, that said, it remains one of the most popular um, trends that's still going strong. All right, let's go on to the next one. Scrum. So Scrum as a project methodology for agile. So you have shorter iterations, continuous integration with your releases. It's, it's a very popular way to manage projects. And when Scrum became popular, at first I was like, what are all these things? These engineering teams have standups and, and sprint demos and planning and retrospectives. And it was kind of foreign to me and I didn't understand why they were meeting or when. Uh, but one day I was reading through the book on scrum by jeff sutherland and suddenly understood its philosophy you know you wanted to check in regularly with customers to make sure that what you're building was on track was what they wanted you didn't want to wait two years and find out that oh crap we veered off course months ago and we built the wrong feature and when i learned how scrum works and the mechanics of it it allowed me to to kind of plug into engineering teams. I could see, oh, they've got their sprint board and I see what, what, uh, when their release is and I wanna see when the demos are gonna be and I wanna get involved in um, the retrospective to see what didn't go right or what, what went right and so on. And it really allowed me to work much better and fluidly with engineering teams. And many times I tried to like create well, I tried to like plug in myself to be a member of Scrum teams, to be treated as one, but it never really worked. Partially allocated resources don't seem to fit into the model of Scrum very well. Um, as a tech writer, you, you bounce around among three or four different Scrum teams. You can't attend all these meetings without just diluting your bandwidth for any kind of productive work. Um, and, and I tried making documentation Scrums, which kind of work, but in reality, most sort of project methodology for documentation tends to fall more in line with Kanban, which is kind of a prioritized to-do list of things. Not really much of a methodology, in my opinion, uh, that like Scrum, but it, it still is very common. Um, most, of the, most of the tools for issue tracking and project planning kind of bake these principles of Scrum and Agile and Kanban right into their interfaces. So, you know, understanding that helps you understand how to work those tools. Another trend. Wow, I feel kind of like I'm going down memory lane in a lot of ways. Um, there was a trend 
to blend techcom and marcom. And what this meant was people recognize that, hey, you know what? Documentation isn't just something that you give people post-sales after they've bought a product. People are actually looking at docs as a way to evaluate whether they want to even buy the product. And people want to see how hard is this thing going to be to configure? What are the requirements? You know, is, is this a 200-page installation kind of a process or is this a two-page thing? Um, and so Techcom is actually a marketing asset. Mar marketing also evolved to embrace this idea that you can't just throw sales literature at people. You have to build relationships by giving them helpful content. You know, a great example of this is the, the Content Components podcast by Hereto, formerly Easy Ditta. It's a podcast and it's got really helpful info. They're not just trying to sell their products. You barely even know that like it's, it's produced by somebody who's uh, a leader of, of this company. They're giving you helpful information, building this relationship and making you uh, their, their kind of partner and giving you valuable educational materials. Well, documentation fits in with that plan perfectly, right? What's more helpful than a nice tutorial or a, a nice screencast or, hey, here are all the, the facts and details about this new product we released. Well, I thought I would be a perfect fit for this blend of Techcom and Marcom because I blog a lot and I was like, I would be the perfect corporate blogger. I could take a company's blog and just hit home runs, you know, with content, you know, for sure. Just give me the reins. But when I tried, unfortunately, I was met with the reality that marketing companies really or marketing groups really do not want to say anything uh, that touches upon frictions or issues that people are having, you know, which is kind of the basis of story. All story starts with some issue and then you have some attempt to resolve that issue. And when you remove that, that friction or like, Hey, this is the challenge we ran into. Um, the, the, the corporate blog post just became more of a tech tip. It just basically was the documentation pasted in there or the release notes paste release notes pasted in there. And I grew tired of that. I think it would have been much more fruitful to see this intersection of techcom and marcom as like, uh, how can marcom reuse our existing techcom assets? Um, and that would have been much more fruitful. Like in an ebook, how can marcom take and repurpose all this content we have about developing apps or something, but make it graphically attractive and packaged as if they're getting something more than just documentation. All right. Every page is page one it was a very popular mantra developed by Mark Baker, uh, uh, who really, he looked at a lot of trends on the web and saw that um, the way people were reading on the web was that they would bounce around from site to site or even within the same site, but they weren't reading linearly. They were reading kind of standalone in a standalone way. They would check out an article and just read it. So if these articles did not have a sense of being able to stand by themselves and provide context and be kind of modular, uh, then, then they were failing for the reader. Around this time, there are a lot of people who are trying to move their, their print-based manuals 
onto the web. And so they would kind of look through and say, okay, how about at every heading two level, we just go ahead and, and make a new topic there. We're going to burst it at that break point and, and then just generate that out onto the web. And people can kind of look at the table of contents and trace through the path to, to actually stitch together any kind of coherence. Well, people don't use the table of contents very often on websites. Uh, you know, it's there, it, it's comforting psychologically to see like a hole and get a sense of how big something is, but people aren't like expanding folders and clicking down and kind of making their way through docs that way. Um, it's much more common that they, they do a search and land on a page and read it and do another search, land on another page and read it so that they're, and a lot of times their first page that they read is also their last page. And so it's kind of like every experience is, is the first page. Well, I didn't abandon this. I think in the developer docs world, developers really prefer lengthy pages uh, because they preserve context. They allow devs to use the control F and so on. And I think as web patterns become more familiar uh, and second nature to us, you know, we just naturally incorporate that into the way we write docs as well, creating more standalone articles that uh, don't rely on a heavy table of contents. Uh, to navigate. Okay. API documentation is another huge trend and have a whole course on this, right? This sort of rose in prominence with web APIs. You know, APIs have been around for a long time, Java APIs, C++, but it wasn't until like 2006, 10, you know, 15, where suddenly REST APIs are everywhere. And with REST, it seems like uh, a lot of the docs were written um, just uh, outside of the code. You didn't really need to generate out documentation from the code, that, from annotations in the source code like you did with Java. Created a much higher demand for documentation websites. With Java, it seems like all the outputs look highly similar. You have a Java doc. But with REST APIs, uh, everybody has their own website. It's like unique from one one product to the, to another at different companies and rest APIs are also a lot more accessible. They're easy to, to use. You don't have to be a programmer. Um, well, I definitely embraced API documentation. And even though, um, you know, I've always had opportunities to do different things. I found that I like working on a code level. I'm not a, any, by any means a developer, uh, and most of the code is over my head, but I do like working with code. Um, it's sometimes fun to make things work and, and experiment with it. Um, I think API docs will continue to be popular. It's definitely the most popular feature on my site, and that popularity reflects kind of the popularity in the industry. All right, getting down there, Git and GitHub. This is another huge trend. Git is a way to manage files with version control and GitHub is just a platform for Git projects that's online, uh, often catering to open source. And I adopted Git and GitHub because um, it fits perfectly if you have a docs-like code tool. Um, if you have plain text files and you want to manage them in case you, know, you wanna revert to something or you wanna merge and have distributed kind of workflows across people. Uh, it's a, it's a great way to work, but also if you're in developer docs, this is how developers work. They manage all their content with Git. And if you ever want to integrate in with developers, 
and make um, comments or edits to source annotations in their code, you'll have to follow a similar workflow using Git and so on. Uh, so it, it's helpful to use it, but it also just really is a nice way to work. It's a way to manage content without a big database and without a big CCMS. All right, docs as code. Uh, I've already alluded to this, but it's basically using the same workflows and tools that developers use to write software code, also for documentation. That's very developer-centric. And the reason most people adopt it is because they're working within developer circles and they want these SMEs, these subject matter experts, the developers and so on, to be able to write, edit, and contribute to documentation. Um, very common in engineering heavy organizations to have this infrastructure. It's, it's grown incredibly uh, throughout the last, I don't know, five plus years. In fact, I was looking at my previous uh, presentation back in 2015 I gave a presentation to TC World India uh, was out of Bangalore and I totally was talking about docs as code uh, and and I think I was um, very much on track with this trend because it's not something that fizzled it's gotten more and more strong now finally this is the last trend and uh, <clears throat> Basically, remote work. You're all familiar with this, mandated with the pandemic and so on. But I think it suits tech techcom really well, uh, because whereas engineers seem very team centric, you know, they have very tight teams where they're developing. They have to have a lot of collaboration. Tech writers, by and large, tend to be more like singletons, sort of like on the periphery of teams. You interact with a lot of different teams, but you're not really a member of a specific engineering team. And because of this, this whole need to be on site and have the morale of, a, of an engineering team isn't as, isn't as high. Even when you're on site, you could still be alone in a crowd, you know. Um, now, why did I abandon or, or not abandon it? Uh, my workplace is adopting a hybrid model, so it's three days in, two days out, and so on. But... I think it's very likely that world events could easily propel us back into a virtual, uh, fully remote model, right? And I'm definitely curious to see what the metaverse brings and so on and how that might enable more digital interactions. Okay, so that was a lot. Hope you're still with me here. I think I have 15 more minutes. Conclusions to draw. Remember I said that I was taking an inductive approach, right? I, I wanted to start with some raw data, raw experiences, and say, well, what can I learn from all this? All these 15 trends, why did I adopt them? Why did I abandon them? It's kind of messy, right? There's nothing really that clearly stands out, but I give it my best shot here. Um, okay, one principle, what makes sense in one context? might not make sense in another. You know, this is particularly true through a number of tools, but take wikis, for example. You know, it makes sense when you've got a lot of contributors. It doesn't make sense if you're the only writer, you know, but uh, so so if you switch companies and you switch contexts, different tools might make more sense and different practices. Another principle, easier tools won't make non-writers willingly start writing docs. I've seen this so, so commonly throughout my careers. 
people think, oh, if we just had an easier tool, then people would just start writing. And it never worked out. It's like people, people contribute tiny little bits here and there, but writing is a lot of work and nobody just like writes big chunks of documentation unless they have to. All right. Another principle, you're less likely to outgrow tools that are flexible, customizable, and hackable. The docs code tools are, are the epitome of this. They fit into any system and workflow and you can script commands and do just, you can push and pull them in many different ways and make it fit to whatever your, your workflow is. And because of that, they sort of survive any kind of frustration to, to, about restrictions. Another conclusion to assess trends related to titles and roles. Look at job postings for a reality check. This kind of comes back to the content strategy one. It's like, uh, what do the job postings say? This is, this is actually how a lot of academics study trends. They're like, let's look at common keywords um, in a lot of job postings over time and see what sort of skills are in demand because they're always trying to, prepare, trying to prepare their students with the right skills to succeed in the job market. So this fits in with what they're doing, but it also is a great way to analyze trends because if no employer is looking for a skill, it's probably not much of a trend. You know, uh, do you see a lot of job postings for tech writers to write chatbot copy, for example? Uh, could we be a way to do a reality check on things? Five, trends start on the web before they make their way into tech com. I think a lot of the, 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 the trends that I've adopted have been because I've been working in developer circles, but git and github and the docs as code stuff and api documentation and all this stuff like this sort of starts with engineers um, within the tech sectors and so on and it sort of makes their way into tech com uh, even the, the practices about how people read with every page is page one this sort of starts on the web how what what direction is the web heading and i think tech com usually follows all right last conclusion if you're working with developers, following their workflows, tools, and processes helps you connect with their world. Uh, for sure, like a lot of the practices in the developer documentation space are highly similar to those of developers. And it helps you connect with them. It helps you understand their workflows and helps them understand your workflows. And that mutual understanding does help collaboration quite a bit. All right, so those are just general conclusions. Now, in our last nine minutes, we're gonna get to the fun part. Can these conclusions be used to assess future trends? So now this trend that I'm most mixed about is the remote, remote work one. Can we assess whether fully remote work is here to stay or whether it's a temporary reconfiguration, you know, due to a time-bound event like the pandemic? Is it, is, is, remote work here, fully remote work here to stay. This is kind of the question that's been on my mind and many others, because right now, at least in the US, the pandemic seems to be winding down uh, and people are returning to, to office. You know, for example, for me, my return to office date, three days in a week starts in April. So it's like next week basically, or the week after. Uh, and so I've been wondering, well, is, are companies going to adopt a hybrid 
kind of work? Is this how it will be? Like I go in three days and I'm home two days. You see other companies like Facebook, Twitter, they've gone fully remote, hundred percent remote all the time. If you want, uh, what's going to be the trend? How is this going to play out? Other companies are even less flexible, right? So the big question, oh, and the extremes of remote work seem very pressing as well. You know, I just barely touched on this in that, in that uh, previous slide, but Imagine the, the extremes of 100% remote work. You source talent all over the globe. Because of this, workers who were once you know, local are now competing with people everywhere who can live in less expensive areas. A pool of writers grows. Tech writers get hired in kind of a plug and play model per project basis, like a service. Cost of labor comes down because you can hire from anywhere. Uh, tech writers who once lived in expensive areas and had to charge high rates, now can't get those rates, move out into the rural areas, you know, urban hubs decay. There's no sense of company culture, team morale. It's just kind of uh, just, just this kind of contract model. So this is, this is like what's at stake potentially in, the, in an extreme outcome. If everybody flips to 100% fully remote work, it'd be the hugest disruption in the work model since I don't know, it began. Um, can you evaluate this using these principles that we uh, were that I was just talking about? What makes sense in one context might not make sense in another. Well, now now you're getting into uh, just more of my uh, uh, thoughts here. But basically, I think the post-pandemic world definitely presents a new context where previous models might not apply. Um, you know, pre previously outsourcing was kind of the way that people hired outside, but uh, that didn't make the local tech writers ex extinct. But in a post-pandemic world, outsourcing might be more common because everybody's already remote. Easier tools won't make non-writers willingly start docs. Well. This one doesn't really connect very well. You know, I think tech writers are here to stay no matter what, uh, just because people aren't naturally going to start writing big chunks of docs. But I don't really see how this principle applies to assess remote work as a trend to stay or, or disappear. You're less likely to outgrow tools that are flexible, customizable, and hackable. Well, for sure, you know, it's not a tool, but remote work is definitely something that's flexible, customizable to your schedule attend meetings anywhere, interact asynchronously, you know, do vi video conference from any place. Uh, so it's definitely some, a model that uh, fits a lot of people and that flexibility tends to be very appealing. To assess trends related to titles and roles, look at job postings. Well, uh, you can look now at job postings and see how many job postings are there for fully remote tech writers. Um, it's kind of hard to, to look at that. It's hard to sort of evaluate that, uh, but definitely there are a lot more. In fact, fully remote is now much more visible in sites like Indeed and so on. Uh, trends that start on the web before they make their way into techcom. I think if you look at engineers and what they, how they work, um, for sure it's interesting because engineers a lot of times like uh, extended periods of concentration so they can get into flow. And even now um, with social media kind of fragmenting our attention, this need to have extended periods of time to think and work code out might be something that's really important. It might be something that people 
especially engineers feel they can only achieve in an isolation at home and so on. And if engineers go uh, fully remote, then I, I would suspect TechCom would sort of follow. And finally, you know, if you're working with devs, follow their workflows for sure. If you're working with teams of engineers that are all permanent remote, it seems like tech writers would be as well. So I don't know. Um, you know, whether you can actually use any learnings from past trends to evaluate future ones is up for debate. But my conclusion is that it seems more likely than not that at some point, fully remote would become the norm in the future. No idea how far, uh, but for the time being, it seems most people are adopting hybrid models. Um, and this is where, you know, it's kind of a reality check on this presentation. Can you extrapolate principles from the past on trends? to try to predict the future uh, of how trends will play out. And in some ways, sort of, sort of, sort of not, right? It's like, it's really hard to know because so many things seem to be unique. But um, at least this gives you something to think about. And I've presented a few different ideas about how things could play out. Uh, but my takeaway, at least in this last example, is, you know, if things do flip fully remote, Figure out how to work productively, uh, how to avoid burnout, Zoom fatigue, social isolation, mental anxiety, lack of productivity, all that stuff. Because even if uh, it doesn't really have to be something you apply from a work from home model, it'll certainly make you more productive in the workplace. And this brings me to the end. And I'll take any questions people have. I think um, my time is kind of out as well. But, uh, um, if you have questions, reach out to me uh, at tomjoht at gmail or Tom Johnson on Twitter or my site. I'd rather be writing. I have a contact form. And again, um, I've got a lot more information about all these trends I talked about. Uh, feel free to kind of dive into them. But thank you. Appreciate your, your time and attention. And it's been fun talking about this, this subject with you. Hi, Tom. Uh, thank you so much for your session. I'm sorry I wasn't there to introduce you. But there are a couple of questions on the chat window, and I figured maybe we can pick up one or two in the interest of time. And oh, yeah. others who posted their questions, like Tom mentioned, please reach out, or we can collate the questions and Tom send it across to you. And then, you know, we can oh. basically um, then yeah. circle back to the do, people, right? Do I so have just a couple of them. Yes, yes. Can so I, can I let go us some? get the first uh, question, which is, what is your take on doc as code and headless CMS trends? Uh, yeah, you know, I get people asking me a lot of questions about what tools are tools I recommend for docs as code. Uh, and, you know, it's very difficult to navigate still um, most of the big tech companies roll their own or they 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 have tools teams to support a lot of these needs there's no out of the box sort of experience but i do think that they're here to stay um, uh, and the headless cms will, will give you that easy interface that's more more web cms like on top of something that lives on git um, so yeah I, I definitely recommend people kind of pursue that all right let me can I just read the next one? Uh, yes. um, or if you could take this one, uh, which is kind yeah. of probably running on everybody's mind more I, often than not, is that do you feel chatbots and automation can take over tech writing opportunities in future? Um, 
do I, uh, which one is that? That's, oh, there the we go. Do I one? feel chatbots? Yeah. yeah. You know, I was this morning, I was playing basketball with a guy who told me that his job is to automate content snippets uh, in a Mad Lib kind of way. Basically, they have these pre-formatted sentences. They take out key keywords from it and then just like use AI to generate sentences from a pool of other words that get stuffed into the sentences in an automated way. And I was like, oh, uh, that sounds terrifying. I, I don't want to read stuff that's written by AI. But um, do I think chatbots... And automation can take over tech writing. No, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had a positive experience with a chatbot. So maybe in some contexts they could, but I, I don't. And ultimately they're just like um, nice search engines anyway. Let me ask some of these, other, but then again, some other people are much more into chatbots. So this is my take. Let me read another one. I'm new to tech writing and getting a feeling that in order to be successful, one must learn to surf these tides of trends skillfully. What would you say? Uh, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Worry more about just building uh, your skills. Um, you know, like trends come and go. Well, they don't really go. Like trends come and go within your company. Uh, but but uh, it's not something you have to like study out really. I'm new to, oh, that's another same question. Scrum and writers shared across teams as a reality in most companies today. Any suggestions on how writers in such situations can make the most? Just understand the mechanics of Scrum and plug in where you want. You know, figure out where they, how they manage their their tickets, where they keep them, their sprints, their iterations, their roles, and so on, and use that understanding to kind of work more optimally with them. What is your input on Dita as a technical writer? Is it the latest trend? Do we really need to learn to survive in this field? Um, uh, to survive in this field by no means. I mean, it is used in large enterprises, which actually might be pretty common if there's a lot of more multinational companies in, in your area. Um, I, I don't think you, it's something to, to worry about. Usually data really simplifies and restricts what you can do. And if you're in a system where it's used, surely you can, can pick it up and, and make it work. I would recommend though, that if you do learn, learn data, if you can stay away from the specialized topic types, you'll have a much better experience. You won't be frustrated by the information model. Uh, can I use WordPress for my web hosting of my docs? If not, is there any platform that I can use to host my content, publish my documents directly? I mean, you can use WordPress, sure. Um, but usually if like you're working for a company, you're gonna, you're not gonna have WordPress available. Like, you know, um, if you can, fine, it's not, it's not, bad. It's just not as easy. It's not very common. Uh, let's see. What else? What's your take on the future of API docs and the role of tech writers? Do you think software could take up automated API documentation? Well, you know, the reference part is usually just one aspect. It's important, but it's not the full extent of it. And there's always a lot of documentation that has to be written. Um, I think the future of docs is API documentation in some way or another. It's like such a huge shift in the industry because so many companies now, their main product is information. They, they have an API, you know, it's, it's the, how they get information out and it's where a lot of the jobs are definitely recommend it. Um, all right. Thanks for the session. You took us down memory lane question I have for you, how to succeed when writing contents for every page is the first page model. To write every page as page one, write longer topics, uh, include 
a section at the top that kind of sets context and links out to topics they would need to, you know, assume I, I put links all over my topics cause I just assume people navigate in line and, and so on. And, um, uh, yeah, try to make it more standalone as possible, if possible, which document output PDF or web will be a trend for the future. Definitely web, but you know, PDF is still actually quite, quite popular. Uh, it still ranks at like 30% of the outputs for whatever reason, but the web uh, seems to offer so many more advantages for navigation and information architecture and so on. It's hard to, uh, access controls. It's hard to not think that it would be more dominant. All right. Well, that's my quick run through through all these again. Thanks for, um, thanks for being with me here and feel free to reach out to me. Hope you have a great conference. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, we would like to take this opportunity to really thank you, uh, for attending this and, you know, sharing your ideas because, uh, like me, I, I believe a lot of us have been kind of visiting. I would rather be writing on and off. And I think it's, it's really good to kind of get it firsthand from you. So thank you very much for this amazing session. And we will definitely be reaching out for any more questions or any more, uh, inputs we would like to have from you. Thank you for so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Tom. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.